The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Welcome to Spectrumly Speaking. I'm Becca Laurie, your house Aspie, and maybe your favorite notebook and possibly your favorite pen. And I'm joined here by Dr. Kate Cody. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist who practices in New York City. I work with kids through adults on the autism spectrum, offering therapy and evaluation services, and I supervise and train graduate students and postdocs so we have more clinicians who can support this community. How are you doing, Becca? I'm doing all right. Um, I'm a little like things are a little crazy in my house right now. So I'm going to pre-apologize if you hear my dogs. We're fostering a third puppy right now. Aww. Um, yeah. So he's a little um, like schnauzer mix. He's about penny size and everything. He's super sweet. But he has like an injury to his mm-hmm. leg. So that was never taken care of. So we're doing the medical side with him and then we're going to send him out for adoption. It's my first foster and I'm really excited, but it's exhausting. <laughs> Three dogs is exhausting. Puppies are exhausting. (laughs) Well, you know, if if Liam, if my baby was allowed to interject in a previous episode, I don't see why the dogs can't. (laughs) Well, um, yeah. So today, our I'm excited um, about our guest. Our guest is Kimberly Spire O. Kimberly is an attorney in private practice. Ms. Spiro received a JD from Hofstra School of Law and a BS in Industrial and Labor Relations from Cornell University. Her practice focuses on special education law and advocacy and disability law representing clients throughout Florida. Prior to starting her law practice, Ms. Spire O was legal editor for LRP Publications Reporters, bulletins and treaties involving disability law. She has also worked as a mediator as a congressional caseworker, as donor relations officer for the Harvard School of Public Health, and as a grant writer and consultant for numerous nonprofit organizations. Ms. Spiro has firsthand knowledge of disabilities as an individual with seizure and autoimmune disorders and as a mother of a twice exceptional child. Welcome to the show, Kimberly. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Um, As we begin all our interviews, can you tell us how you first became involved with the autism community? Um, Well, I um, unknowingly became a member of the autism community when my son was born. um, And it took quite a few years before um, coming to the realization um, that he has Asperger's. and then I became involved in advocating for the community even before I realized that that was the um, correct diagnosis for him. Um, when I started to um, work, you know, try to help him um, have his needs met within the school system, um, after doing that for a couple of years, his doctors and um, a number of other parents approached me and said um, that because I'd had to do a lot of research and figure out um, what the rights were and what the correct interventions were for different things, maybe I should pursue um, advocating for others. And as I started working with um, all different kinds of students with different types of disabilities, I became, I I realized um, and recognized a lot of the traits 
of um, ASD within my own son and also within myself and um, his father. Um, I read the book Neurotribes, which I highly recommend, which kind of um, indicates that a lot of parents of children on the spectrum have some of the traits and may not have been diagnosed or may not be clinically um, diagnosable, but um, have some of the similar traits. We interview a lot of people who have autism and have children that are on the spectrum. In your case, you and your son have very different neurodiverse diagnoses. Can you talk a little bit about balancing between your different needs as he grew up? Um, actually, I would say my family has different diversities, and so it's been kind of a whole family type um, project. Um, I didn't realize a lot when my son was very young, he was, um, he had sensory sensitivities and he felt overwhelmed by a lot of things. And I didn't quite knew, you know, know what was going on with him. So we had to go through um, several years of um, him having meltdowns that were just his way of trying to communicate that he was overwhelmed. Um, and, you know, my not knowing what to do, seeking um, assistance from people who, because he had a very large vocabulary for a child his age, um, refused to look at uh, ASD as a possibility for him. Um, so once I realized, you know, this place is too loud for him, or we're asking after a long day of school too much for him to do this homework that he finds overwhelming, um, you know, kind of identifying what was going on with him and then reaching out to professionals who um, did understand um, and getting their assistance was helpful. Um, when he was young, I had to deal with um, my seizure disorder, um, having to make sure that I didn't get overtired because I'm more likely to have seizures um, when I'm exhausted. And so going through the whole um, thing, when I changed him, I had to change him on the floor so that I didn't have to worry if I had a seizure while I, you know, he was on a changing table that he might fall off. And I had to make some adjustments that my neurologist and the neurological nurse who worked with us, um, you know, helped me to make adjustments to help him. Um, but I think it was a lot of... Um, doing research and I, you know, recognizing what is going on with him. And as we went through his life, um, he went through, you know, we, once we identified, okay, when he gets overwhelmed, this is what happens. So we know to pull back from whatever it is. Then we had to deal with the executive functioning um, challenges as he got older. And I was a super organized person. So um, trying to figure out, you know, what worked for me to keep me organized um, wasn't working for him. So reaching out for other resources to help him do as well in school as he was capable of doing um, and getting him special classes to help with that and coaching. Um, those were all very helpful to me. Can you talk about some of the biggest legal challenges um, with that people with autism um, face and that you see in your work? Um, in my work, I'm mostly working within the educational community. So um, we're talking about students from pre-K all the way through higher education. Um, in the pre-K through grade 12 um, setting, one thing that I um, am seeing a lot of that is very concerning to me is the use of restraints and seclusion and Baker acting. In Florida, um, Baker, for people who are not in Florida, that's when um, Somebody who, 
the way it's supposed to work is somebody who is at Im uh, imminent risk of causing serious bodily injury to themselves or others is taken into custody and taken to a um, psychological um, evaluation in a hospital setting for 72 hours to make sure that um, their um, mental health needs are being met. A huge number of kids on the autism spectrum, especially after um, the Parkland situation, if they make any kind of comment that may be due to their um, you know, communication um, deficits, they may make a comment that they don't realize how it might be interpreted by other people, um, they are being Baker acted and um, or just restrained as if they are a threat when they aren't at all. And it's the same comment made a year, well, maybe more than a year ago, two years ago, nobody would have thought anything of it, or they would have just simply asked more about it and, you know, investigated as they should um, and found out that the child was expressing frustration or was trying to make a joke and it fell flat. Um, but uh, these types of actions are extremely traumatizing to the students. And in some cases that I've worked on, um, the students become fearful of the school setting and it gets to a point where they can't return to school or it's very difficult to return them to school because they think that they're going to be taken down or put in handcuffs or um, injured. Um, and it's extremely traumatizing to be, you know, have your movement restricted. And in Florida, um, we allow our students to be held at prone um, with their face down, um, usually by three adults holding them down um, as long as needed to calm them down. But in some cases, um, they're held much longer than is necessary. The kids stop fighting, but they're held down for a long period of time. Um, I'm very much against that. And we have a bill to try to change that um, that has been um, rejected the past four years, but hopefully will get passed this year. What are some things people with autism and their loved ones should know about the law? Um, they really need to become aware of their different rights throughout um, their lifespan, um, in the school setting, in the employment setting, um, even um, their rights when going out in public, um, their rights when it comes to interactions with um, government agencies. We have laws, um, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, Title uh, or Section 504 of the um, Rehabilitation Act. And um, the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and um, FERPA in the school setting, the um, Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. All of these laws, when you have somebody in your family who is affected by autism or any other disability, um, you really need to be aware of what um, rights you have and what services are available. And a lot of information can be obtained, um, actually, um, Different Brains has a lot of resources about a wide variety of neurodiversity and um, the issues. Um, something called Rights Law, which is spelled W-R-I-G-H-T-S-L-A-W, is great for learning um, all about um, rights within the educational setting. And um, they have seminars and webinars and books that are helpful. Um, but um, in the educational setting, there are the um, 
there are many, many different resources. And I can even send some out to be um, maybe added uh, to this, to the um, comment section of the podcast where people can look up um, job accommodations that would be helpful that are available to them um, and how to ask for an accommodation, um, whether housing accommodations are needed or, you know, lots of different rights are available. And you might not necessarily know that if you're not an attorney or even if you are an attorney, like when I first started out, I didn't study this area of the law. And when I went to law school, the um, Americans with Disabilities Act didn't even, had not even been passed yet. So, um, but it's really helpful to, um, to know about the resources, know that every state has a protection and advocacy organization that receives funding to provide free legal and advocacy assistance and even policy, you know, they're reaching out and advocating to change policies that are harmful to individuals with disabilities, including autism. Um, there are centers for independent living options in most cities that are there to provide resources. Um, centers for autism re related disabilities that have all different kinds of um, programs that are available to them. Thank you so much, because I, I think that our audience will definitely appreciate some links. Um, what is the best way for someone on the spectrum to become involved about their rights and become informed? If they're younger and they're still in the school system, I think it can be really helpful, although I know it's very hard for them, um, for a lot of them, to participate in their IEP or 504 meetings um, to learn self-advocacy because whatever they're going on to later in life, once they pass the age of 18, um, it's kind of expected that they're going to um, be able to speak for themselves and um, be able to identify what they need and be able to ask for it. And while um, we as parents um, have the ability when absolutely necessary to um, seek um, guardianship or that type of thing, um, if we can, to the extent necessary, allow the individuals um, with autism to be independent, then letting them get practice when they're younger um, can be excellent to, even if they come in later in the meeting after a lot of the discussion, a lot of these meetings involve discussing where are the areas of need, where are the areas where the individual is challenged, and that can be hard to sit there and listen to when other people are talking about you, but coming in after there's been that discussion to say, hey, this is what will help me. Um, or you suggested this accommodation, but I don't like that one, and that might make me stand out, or um, that isn't going to help with what I really need. Having them participate and speak out for themselves at, when they're younger and in a setting where there are people with them, you know, family members or other advocates who are helping them um, will help them later on. Um, but really kind of trying to identify their needs and then participating in the process of doing all the research and reaching out to the links to see what is out there for them and what their rights are. And then um, getting other people, even having a supportive circle as their adults of people who have some expertise in these areas. Um, I'm happy to sit on people's um, advocacy circles or their different um, programs that I became aware of when I was in partners in policymaking where um, you have different community members and family members and friends um, participate in helping young adults and adults navigate the world and um, find um, 
you know, employment um, or start a business or um, navigate healthcare and all of those things, but having people, you know, help them um, learn how to help themselves. Um, I think that that's a wonderful model and um, I'm happy and people like me who are doing my kind of work are always happy to try to help with that. Well, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Um, this is going to kind of wrap up the interview portion. So can you please let everyone know where they can find you and find out more about what you do? Okay. Um, I have a website. It's www.k as in kangaroo, s as in Sam, o as in Oliver, lawfirm.com. Um, I'm involved in a number of other um, organizations within our um, community as well. Um, I'm on the different brains board. So when there are different brains events, um, I will hopefully be there. And um, you can reach me at um, Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y at kslawfirm.com. Um, and I'm happy to answer questions or, um, you know, help find resources for people. I do that all the time. I think we're going to move on to the segment now. We're going to have a little conversation uh, about what it is that you've been specializing in, which is the issue of using restraints and how to know the law, if the law should get involved, if it happens to you. Um, I think it's a really interesting conversation. It's one that um, I really haven't participated in a conversation about restraints. It makes me uncomfortable. So this should be interesting. Um, uh, what is your experience with restraints, Kate? Um, so it's interesting. I um, have only ever received partial training in, um, I wouldn't even call it restraints, but in like physical uh, responses, I guess would be the best way to put it. Um, and that was when I was actually, um, many, many years ago when I was working as an ABA therapist. Um, and that was purely for the purposes of redirecting any like physically impulsive behaviors. Um, I have seen restraints be used in certain educational settings. Um, you know, I've, I've seen them, you know, it's always a question of how necessary are they? And really, you know, the goal should always be that you're protecting, you know, the individual either from themselves or from, you know, inadvertent harm to others. Um, but it, they're, they're really, it's hard and it's really tricky and they've always made me uncomfortable as a professional, even when I've seen them used by people who are appropriately trained in using them. Um, yeah, it's something I really struggle with. Yeah, um, it makes me uncomfortable because I, I, of course, for me, it, I think about what it would feel like for me if I was put into restraints um, mm -hmm. while having a meltdown or, or some kind of physical response to a challenge. Um, and I know for me, it would probably make it much harder to kind of process through that. So yeah, it makes me uncomfortable to think about and talk about, and I don't agree with them. So I think it's interesting that we still have to think about what we would do, or I have to think about what I would do if I was put in restraints um, and if I was um, unlawfully put in restraints. Um, and I think that's sort of where you come in on this, Kimberly. Um, yeah. Well. I can speak 
um, more specifically about Florida law, but it, it's similar to a lot of laws in other states. I know that Maryland has really um, outlawed prone restraint and they have um, switched to a system in a lot of school districts that um, if, uh, and there are situations I understand where somebody could really hurt themselves or could really hurt someone else and we need to prevent that from happening. But they don't, they, they have an, um, a standing upright restraint program that they've been able to successfully use and completely eliminate prone restraint. Because imagine if you're already heightened and emotional and terrified oftentimes um, and overwhelmed, being um, held for, uh, face down. In, in some cases, um, individuals have died from that um, because they can't breathe or I have had a lot of kids who were injured um, with bruising and um, uh, even bones broken from um, the restraints being done. And maybe they weren't being done correctly, but if we're going to use them, we have to absolutely be certain that they are. Um, in Florida, although you're supposed to only do it when it's absolutely necessary, I've seen cases where it's done when, um, students are being belligerent. You know, I refuse to do what you tell me, teacher. And then they take them down. And um, it's horrifying, but it's really hard to do anything about it with the way the law is now. We have laws that re require reporting. Every time a restraint is used on a student with a disability, the school district has to um, record that and report it to the state. And I know in the local school district where I live, they have a policy that they follow up. They have meetings once a month where they follow up and look at the cases. Um, you will find kids as young as five being restrained this way. In fact, most of the cases of restraint are with younger kids. But when you get older kids um, who are larger, it can be dangerous for everyone involved. Um, we really need to put into place, and the law that is being proposed right now, the bill before the Florida legislature right now, um, limits it to having used every kind of prevention before they get to that point. It's supposed to be a last resort. Um, they have to, what they really should be doing is recognizing if a student is getting upset or starting to escalate and um, follow a behavior plan that is individualized to that student to respond, to help calm them down, um, to give them a break or to um, help them do deep breathing or um, get them away from whatever, you know, get them away from activity or too much noise um, and have trained practitioners who, spend most of their time doing that. I find that a lot of the training that school district employees who, who are given the ability to perform restraint are given spends an awful lot of time on the restraint process and not enough time on the prevention and how to de-escalate and how to prevent even, you know, having a problem. Um, so, yeah. Well, it sounds like we have a lot of work to do still. Um, I think the community as, as a whole, we all kind of don't really agree with restraints, I guess. Um, I, I haven't really, I guess the last time I really saw it come up in a conversation was uh, when we were talking, people were talking about the Judge Rottenberg Center and we were talking about shock as well. 
Um, so I right. kind of put it in that category for myself. And so I really think, yeah, it has to be a last resort um, if, and, and only in the case of needing to protect each other. And, and um, that's not how it's used currently. So and unfortunately, it's a state by state basis, I guess, that we have to kind of fight that battle, huh? Right. Now, um, I know that in Florida, there have been messages going out telling parents that they should um, have a letter or some kind of notice telling the school that they do not consent to restraint. Mm -hmm. um, and while I like the idea of it, and whenever I go to an IEP meeting, I make it clear that I will not allow restraint to be added to an emergency plan or a behavior plan as something that the parents because anything that happens in an IEP meeting is kind of imputed that the parents um, or you know, family members agree to it. Um, so I refuse to have it on the plan, but I recognize that legally the school district, if it says that there is an emergency situation where there is a risk of bodily, serious bodily injury or that they're allowed to use it, so just because a parent signs a form or a letter saying, no, we don't allow it, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Um, the best thing you can do to prevent it is to really work with the team and develop a behavior plan individualized to the child and bring in not just the teacher who a lot of teachers, um, there are some teachers who have the full training on behavior, but a lot of um, special education teachers and especially general education teachers don't really have the training and knowledge of um, how to prevent things. So bringing in people who are behavior experts um, to a team and having them in the classroom obser observing the student and identifying what would, you know, what the causes of the behavior are. Is it avoidance of something that is very, you know, um, traumatic or is overload? Um, is it trying to get attention um, in a way that the school finds inappropriate, you know, find out, develop a really um, comprehensive plan, and then making sure that everybody is well trained on it, having a lot of oversight by people who know what they're doing to make sure, you know, that everybody is on board with the plan, and then having meetings every four to six weeks, or more often if there are problems, to make sure that the plan is appropriate and to change and tweak it as needed. Um, in the cases where I've been able to, you know, stop the process of using restraint, um, that is what has been needed to do it. Sometimes if a school is too trigger happy to do it, then I will advocate for moving the child to another school. If, um, because a lot of schools will, will take the approach that they would rather do anything other than restrain a child. And I've seen that that is very successful, that um, you can really change from a child being restrained. I had one that was restrained seven times over a few months to nothing since he changed schools. Um, and I have had students who um, were restrained practically every day and couldn't return to a school setting, um, change schools to one that refuses to do it and um, flourishing, um, doing really well. But you don't want to allow the harm to happen because once a child has been through that and is traumatized, they can develop PTSD and it's going to be very hard to overcome it. Yeah. And 
I, I couldn't agree more with, you know, what you're talking about in terms of utilizing, you know, proactive behavior support strategies. Um, and, and that really a, a huge component is making sure that you're having, you know, true trained behaviorists in there to conduct functional behavior assessments. Um, and to be able to identify what are the proactive preventative strategies that we can utilize and then what are some other ways we can sort of you know attempt to diffuse things from escalating before you know before they get to the point of more you know dangerous behaviors um and then what are reactive strategies that we can utilize that are promoting you know independently de-escalating or independently regulating emotion as opposed to use of physical restraint um and i know from having um consulted in you know adult settings for adults with intellectual impairment um you know that that this is you know something that came up frequently there and when you have really effective behaviorists in in play and you can truly have a good behavior intervention plan written physical restraint becomes less and less and less needed um those proactive strategies are key they're really really crucial to being able to um reduce you know, the perceived necessity of restraint in my experience. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I think it's important to say perceived necessity, right? Like they're, I, th I think they historically have been highly overused and, you know, there are a handful of legitimate instances where, you know, we were trying to prevent someone from harming themselves or someone else um, because of dangerous behaviors. Um, and then yes, you know, there's a time and a place, but it's far more rare than they've ever actually been implemented, in my opinion. Mm. That's been my experience as well. I agree. Um, we could really cut down. As I said, um, I believe the state of Maryland has eliminated prone restraint and really um, brought down um, instances of restraint overall. And um, by using a, because each um, school district or um, school can choose, there are many, many different providers of programs. Um, and so many of them, especially the ones, I guess, that are less expensive, um, are just how to contain the emergency situation and not how to prevent it. Um, so anytime that you can invest in the prevention, you can save money, not only, um, you can not only just helping the children, but a lot of um, the teachers and school staff members who engage in these practices get injured in the process. Um, so you have workers' compensation claims and, you know, damage to property and things that could be prevented if you just took, uh, you know, preventative approach. And it would be best for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. So I think that's the summary point here is proactive strategies, preventative strategies, they are key and crucial and really highlight why having people who truly understand how to assess the function of behavior is really critical, whether that's in home, school, community, other settings that, that there are so many tools and strategies that we can use before having to go to the place of restraint. Um, and I guess that's kind of a 
little highlighted summary point for you guys. <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, and thank you, Kimberly. Pleasure to have you. Um, again, it was Kimberly Spire O. If you're looking for her, you can find her at KSO Law Firm. Um, and you can, of course, find her through different brains website uh, on the board. Um, so that's going to about wrap it up for us today. Uh, be sure and check out differentbrains.org and check out their Twitter and Instagram at DiffBrains or look for them on Facebook. If you're looking for me, you can find me at www.beccalori.com or you can look for me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, your choice, um, and now on YouTube. Yay! Um, and you can find Walter at on Instagram at Sir Walter Underfoot. If you're looking for me, I can be found at www.spectrumpsychservices.com or via email, which is drcody at spectrumpsychservices.com. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and don't hesitate to send questions to spectrumlyspeaking at gmail.com. And let's keep the conversation going. Spectrumly Speaking is a production of Different Brains. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.